Welcome to a podcast of the Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. Welcome to the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Symposium. Our first session of the day will be presented by Julie Gotro and Tammy Kayusius. Uh, Julie's from Johnson City and earned her law degree from the University of Tennessee College of Law. She practices with the Knox County Public Defenders Community Law Office. And as an outgrowth of her work in indigent criminal defense, she's become involved with several organizations advocating for the rights of incarcerated people and has researched subject matter concerning how mass incarceration functions as a means of disenfranchising minorities, immigrants, and the poor. Tammy Kayusius is in private practice. She opened Kayusius Law in 2008 after practicing law at one of the oldest law firms in Knoxville and having served as an in-house counsel for a global publicly traded company where she was vice president and assistant general counsel. Kayosia says she never intended to get involved in voting issues. Um, She said, I quote, I thought it was simple. You register and you vote. Uh, But that changed in 2008 when during the presidential election she got involved helping people register to vote. And, you know, at the time she was thinking, how hard can this be? She calls this one-day volunteer effort a real-life education and since has worked on the issue of voting rights. A whole lot has happened since then, but I'm going to leave it to her to tell you about it. So let's welcome these two. Thank you, Nelda. Also, thank you to the library for putting this on. It's awesome. It's great to be an informed citizen. An informed citizen is a powerful person. Uh, I want to thank Julie Gotro also. It's great to join her in this, and it's good to be in good company. You heard Delta mention some of my background in voting, and I don't practice in this area as a matter of course. You know, this is not what I do day in and day out. But I did get very interested, as she described, and I've stayed interested. And this particular topic is, does every vote count, voting rights in the disenfranchised? But what is disenfranchisement? So before we get into the talk, I want to see a show of hands of those of you who are registered to vote. (laughs) So you're going to, and how many of you in here voted in the most recent primary? So y'all are here to be (laughs) ultra-informed. Y'all want informed cubed. Um, The last time I gave this talk, it, it, it was in 2016, and I was reviewing my notes to prepare for today, and it was very interesting. Uh, at that time, we had 14 states in the nation that had brand new voting laws. So that meant that in that 2016 presidential elections, it would be the first time that those voting laws were rolled out, okay? I said then that some of these laws are in swing states, and it's no small matter, and these laws coupled with other state voting restrictions could have a real impact on the election. Well, that's what I said. And then the election happened. The presidential election of 2016, and maybe some of us in the room remember it, 
was won on less than 80,000 votes in three battleground states. That's a net vote, okay? Was won on 80,000 votes in three battleground states. So the winner of that election won with just over 1 20th of 1% of the vote, okay? So if you hear that statistic, that the President of the United States won on a margin of 80,000 votes from three states, and someone says, does your vote count? You're like, yeah, it counts. But then those of us who are more sophisticated on voting and live in red states or blue states may think, I'm not in a swing state. It doesn't count. So does your vote count? This is what I'm thinking about preparing for this talk, and so now I'm sharing you my pre-thoughts. So we had about 136 million votes cast in the 2016 presidential election. Now, you want to know how many votes weren't cast in that election? 100,000. So we have one of the most advanced democracies on the planet Earth, and we have a little better than 50% voter participation on a presidential race on a big year. Does your vote count if you don't cast the vote? And why wouldn't you cast the vote? If you live in um, to California and you want to vote for a Republican in a federal election, okay, does your vote count there? If you live in Farragut and you want to vote for a Democrat, does your vote count when you vote? These are questions that I often hear. I'll hear couples yeah, we voted last night, but we canceled each other out. I mean, I'm sure some of you all have heard that. Or, it doesn't matter. It's a, you know, I'm not even going to bother. Or, I'm voting, but I don't think it helps. Things like that that reflect attitudes about voting. In the 2016 election, the loser of the race, the losing candidate, won 2.1% more votes, almost 3 million more votes. So said another way, the majority of those who voted in the United States voted for the losing candidate. You know, we can say that. Now, this panel is not a discussion on Electoral College. It's not a discussion on gerrymandering. It's not a discussion, you know, those are deep dives. We could go into a week on each of those topics alone. But I want to point out a statistic, and that is that at current demographic patterns in 2040, so a little over 20 years from now, 70% of the population will live in 15 states. So they're going to be selecting 30% of senators. 70% of the population will be electing 30% of senators. So that's something to consider. If you watched the hearings yesterday, we had some significant hearings yesterday on, um, on a nominee for the Supreme Court to fill a vacancy by a justice who is sometimes considered a swing vote on things like hyperpartisan gerrymandering. So that justice is a significant justice in voting rights. And this nominee is going to be filling that seat. That's what he's up for. So if you watched that at all, or if you watch the Senate, you might get the sense that senators can actually affect your life. That we might be in Tennessee, but the body of the Senate can affect your life. So then some of those shifts in population and demographics may really matter. Not that the Senate was ever meant to necessarily be a representative body,
but it's still very, very important in potentially baking in certain minority control over a body that's governing the United States. But that's all national trends, and so what about here? What do we do in the volunteer state? According to the most recent records that we have from uh, the study I'm using on this, actually, is a Pew Charitable Trust in 2014, I think, are the most recent numbers. But Tennessee was 40th in voter registration at 74% of the voting age population. So we were 40th in the nation for registration. Do you all know where we were in voting, in actual voting? 50th. So what do you think that means? That if we were at 50th, what percentage of our voting turnout would that be? 28.5%. Okay? I guess, you know, we could look at that as that is a rate of non-voting of some, something like 71%. And so I'll come back to the question of what is disenfranchisement, because we do have examples of actual disenfranchisement. We have examples of people getting their right to vote taken away, where they had it and they can't do it. And where we have that is in, one of the best examples is in felon rights. This is a state-by-state -state matter, and Tennessee has one of the most regressive felon disenfranchisement laws in the nation. And this has an effect. It has an effect not just on the individual who loses their right to vote, but it's also on the community. You couple some of these statistics with mass incarceration and some other statistics that deal with the criminal justice system, and you might start viewing this as affecting specific populations. Is that the way we want this to be? We're going to investigate that a little more, but Julie's going to now come give us a PowerPoint relating to some of these questions as it relates to felony disenfranchisement in Tennessee, and then we'll come back and talk. Hi, I'm Julie Gautreaux. Thank you for being here, and thank you, library. Um, and thanks, Tammy, for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Most people sort of intuitively know that if you get a felony conviction, you're right to vote is suspended. What a lot of people don't really know is how that affects a very large population of people and it has a rippling effect outside into the communities of those people. And so I think that when you want to answer questions of how um, votes are lost, you have to look at felony disenfranchisement as a policy of many states. Um, so I've prepared this PowerPoint for you, and I'm going to sort of, you know, lose eye contact while I try to make some of these points. How voters are eliminated by criminal conviction and the politics of purging the poor, because what happens is this does become very political. Um, look at this map of the United States, and consider first that voting rights equals states' rights. The 14th Amendment specifically says that states can write up their own voting laws. This patchwork of colors um, on a spectrum of you know, red being the harshest states for felony disenfranchisement to green, uh, the most lenient, you'll notice that most of the states are yellow. They're somewhere in the middle. In the red states, Iowa, Kentucky, and Florida, anyone with a felony conviction is disenfranchised from voting for life. In the orange states, which include Tennessee, you have some people who are disenfranchised for life, but most felony offenders can at some point um, get their 
voting rights restored. And it goes all the way down the spectrum to Vermont and Maine, where there is no such thing as felony disenfranchisement. In Tennessee, felons lose the right to vote for a term equal to the maximum sentence that can be imposed. Let me give you an example. I'm a public defender, so I know about felony sentencing. Let's take robbery. All right, it's a Class C felony. It carries a full range of punishment, 3 to 15 years. If you've never been in trouble before in your life and you get the maximum sentence of six years, that's how long that you can serve in prison. But Tennessee says that you will not be able to vote again until the actual full range of punishment has passed, even if you're a first-time offender. So it'll be 15 years before you're able to vote. Okay, so if your sentence is up after six years, you've got another nine years before you're going to be able to vote. Persons convicted of murder, rape, treason, or voter fraud are the classified offenders who are barred from voting for life. And Tennessee is only one of 10 states that does that. To give you an idea of the wide range of consequences, I call them terminators and tolerators. Iowa, Kentucky, Florida, your voting rights are terminated for life. Maine and Vermont... No such thing, and in fact, prisoners serving time in those states may vote in their home districts by absentee ballot. And now in between, you saw the yellow, the patchwork of yellow, and uh, let me go back to that. Okay, in the yellow states, um, people in prison, on parole, and on probation cannot vote. In the deep blue states... People in prison and on parole cannot vote, but all other people with criminal convictions, including people on probation and parole, can. And um, the light blue states just ban voting for people who are actually serving time in prison. Believe it or not, politics is heavily involved in this. And I want to give you an example from two states that are lifer states. You lose your right to vote for life in Iowa and Florida. Uh, In Florida in 2007, Governor Charlie Crist, who was then a moderate Republican and later became a Democrat during the Obama administration, proposed easing voting restrictions for felons. His successor, Governor Rick Scott, reversed those initiatives as soon as he took office. Iowa, the other lifer state besides Kentucky, Governor Tom Vilsack, a Democrat, issued an executive order restoring voting rights for felons. That order was upheld by the Iowa Supreme Court when it was challenged. But then later, Governor Terry Branstad reversed that order, purging thousands of voters from the rolls who had, during the interim time, gotten registered to vote. Why? What is the incentive to do that? Well, I have a theory that is supported by statistics from the Bureau of Justice uh, Statistics uh, Prison Policy Initiative and, and other organizations. And before I start talking about criminality and poverty, I want to, of course, acknowledge that most poor people are not criminals, but most felons are poor, and um, most of them are convicted of nonviolent offenses. Look at the numbers here. I'm going to start on the right side of this prison policy initiative statistic. Non-incarcerated people, meaning people like us, and what the mean income is for uh, men and women in general, and then how it breaks down according to race. Uh, men, obviously, for reasons that you know we could talk about for years, um, <laughs> have the highest average income. 
If you break that down according to race, you will see that the average income for white men is substantially higher than the mean income for all men and is even is grossly higher than that for black and Hispanic men, and women follow a similar pattern. All right, incarcerated people, look at the difference between men. Non-incarcerated, $41,000 a year is the average income, and for men who are incarcerated prior to going into prison, it's less than half. Why is that? All right, so I want to talk about something that began happening in the early 1980s during the Reagan administration and continued unabated, to be honest with you, during the Clinton administration in the 1990s, and that's a phenomenon of mass incarceration. Now, being a a convicted felon does not necessarily mean that you're going to prison, but when you're poor... And I, again, I could, if I had you know, hours and hours to talk about this, I could show you the statistics. But when you're poor and you're convicted of a felony, you're a lot more likely to go to prison. And so this really does have more of an impact on the poor. In the 1980s, there was, you may recall, the war on drugs that not only um, increased penalties for drug trafficking offenders, but also created new offenses that previously hadn't existed. And so you were able to take more and more people into custody for violating crimes that you know, hadn't really existed before. And during the 1990s, particularly in 1994, there was a law passed, and it was a bipartisan measure supported by the Clinton administration and, and uh, both parties in Congress, called the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. Now, that sounds like a nice way to protect society, Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. But what really that law had the effect of doing was creating a multi-billion dollar funding source for law enforcement expansion, which included militarizing police, and expanding the prison industry itself, including um, private prisons. Looking at race and poverty, um, before you even consider felony status, 20% of black adults and about 20% of Hispanic adults live below the poverty line compared to 10% of their white counterparts. And this was the 2014 Bureau of the Census. Tying in mass incarceration or felony convictions to race, you will see the disparity increase. 64% of the overall U.S. population is white, Among blacks, you have 13% of the overall U.S. population, and yet they comprise 40% of the prison population of the United States. And Latinos follow a similar pattern. All right, so not that I'm pessimistic or anything, but it is really tough um, if you are convicted of a felon to reestablish your right to vote. And there are other forms of voter suppression beyond this. But the reason I wanted to talk about this is to give you an idea of how entrenched in the law, and even in constitutional law, the idea of voter suppression is. Why is it that in Iowa and Florida and Kentucky, you lose your right to vote forever, and yet if you're living in Maine or Vermont, you can vote from your prison cell by absentee ballot? What are the policies behind that? What is the objective? And If you're just using your common sense, it's clear that there are certain people in power who just don't want certain types of people to vote, all right? And you just have to look at that. Um, The inconsistency 
and voting rights for felons across states illustrates the arbitrariness and void policy of excluding voters with felony convictions. And pay attention to who is working for voter reform for felons. Pay attention to who's doing that, and pay attention to the people who are trying to block that reform. And then ask yourself, what is really the point of not allowing felons to vote? Why are they not competent to cast a ballot? The purging of voters by felony conviction effectively shuts millions of poor and minority citizens out of the political life of this country. And that is the effect that it has. If you look at the communities that they go back to, you see that ripple effect goes out through the, the, the whole community. They feel shut out, and I think that when you feel shut out, you, you don't see the point in it anymore. Um, and that, I think, is something that we could reverse by eliminating felony disenfranchisement. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. I represented felons, ex-felons, who wanted to get their voting rights restored. And I'm not going to share a lot of that, but I want to tell you one thing that I found out in the context of that representation. I had not had a lot of experience with that population. So in my law practice, that's not a population that I would work with very often. And my assumption, quite frankly, before I started working in this area, uh, was that that a lot of felons, ex-cons wouldn't want to vote, and it's not so. That That's actually a real interest. They ask about it a lot. So it's not a lack of interest. You know, my experience is that uh, these ex-felons are interested in participating. We make it very difficult to do that in this state. Another thing I want to mention is that one of my clients was 80-something years old, and his conviction was in another state and it was 50 years old and and there are a million tiny tragedies that I could focus on on this but what I really want to say is what struck me is that we were down at the courthouse for the maybe second or third time and we had to go to the court and then we had to go over to the election office and then back to the court and we were doing this and this was like the second trip And I turned around and looked at him. He was on a walker when we were at one of the back and forths. And he was just sweating. You know, he was pouring in sweat because of the effort of walking on the walker to move all those different ways. He had to park, so he had to find a good parking space for a handicap. I mean, I don't know how much of that I take. You know, if I can't press PayPal in a second, I I, I go off the site. And... There's a real effort involved in these folks getting their rights restored. So to discount the lack of participation based on a lack of interest, I believe is a very faulty assumption and a damaging one too. And I think that may apply to a lot of different areas in voting because there are sophisticated methods of suppression which have an effect of not allowing people to vote. We have, in addition to one of the more aggressive um, felony disenfranchisement laws, we also have a pretty regressive law as it relates to photo IDs, and in particular I want to focus on youth. So if you are a University of Tennessee student and you go to a polling location located at the University of Tennessee to vote, 
and they ask you for a photo ID, and the photo IDs have been around in Tennessee for a while, maybe 2011, 2012, but they changed in 2016. But if you go, but this particular thing didn't change, but if you go and you are asked to prove your identity, which is something, of course, most of us who have voted didn't have to do until 2012 or so, then you pull out your photo ID, your student ID from being a University of Tennessee student, and that doesn't count. You can't use your University of Tennessee student ID as a method of showing your identification when you go to vote. If that student who may not know that because they didn't go to the website and it is not worded clearly, I'm telling you, and they didn't figure out the deep dive in the regulations on Tennessee voting and what IDs are acceptable, and they're just going to go vote, they are registered, okay, they're registered, they're going down to the polls to vote, and they get turned away because their student ID, which they're using for everything else on campus, is not acceptable, then they're going to go back, and maybe they won't come back. So that student just became one of the 70% non-voters in the state of Tennessee. So difficulty in voting leads to numbers that looks like a population that's not engaged. And this is important because the assumption we have that no one cares may be the wrong assumption. So who would benefit from young people not having an easy access to the polls. Who would benefit from that? These are sort of the questions Julie was raising, to look at these things with that eye. And I didn't get the Tennessee numbers for registration based on youth, and I don't know if we have those easily accessible in Tennessee, but I did see some really interesting numbers in Virginia. Because I know I'm always saying young people don't vote from the point of view if you're looking at campaigns or out potential outcomes. But Virginia, in 2017, their young voter turnout increased, and it was one of the highest in the history. Now, in young in this context, I think we're talking about under 35 years old, okay? In 2018 in Virginia, they have 172,000 new registrations this is a few months out of date. And 106,000 of those were voters under 35. That's a lot. That shows an increased interest in voting. Now, they have to go through a lot to, to get to that but, that, but that does show an increased interest. So with our dismal numbers in the state of Tennessee for voter participation, and maybe this is the question that I should ask, and I kind of know the result in here, but those in this room who think it is a bad thing that citizens do not vote, raise your hands. So if you think it is a good idea to increase voter turnout, raise your hands. All right. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page because some some people may say no, and why would they say no? And these are things we have to to analyze. Um, the vote has a long history in this country, and the right of suffrage has been hard fought, and it has not come easy for everyone. 
And the ebb and flow of that, the expanding of the right to vote and the backlash against that, that is part of our history. And I think what I see when I look at our current times is that voting is now becoming front and center in a political war. And in a way, it seems obvious. Well, it's political. But in a way, it's actually odd because every right as a citizen arises from the vote everything. It is dispositive to being an American citizen. Why would it have such partisanship attached to it? There's reasons for that too, and and we could talk for days on that. But it is a problem. That is what I'm saying. It's a problem. And those of us in here know that, but it's also a problem in that it is our democracy. It is the foundation of this nation as a republic. With our dismal numbers, we all in here agree that's not a good thing, that Tennessee has such low voter turnout. And I don't think we can say it all applies to difficulty in photo IDs and gerrymandering. And I don't think we can actually say that. I think that that's going too far. I think a lot of it is voter apathy. And, you know, we don't have numbers on this. And so it's, you know, this is all anecdotal. So then the question becomes, what could we do to overcome that? And some of it is changing laws. And the Florida law that Julie showed us, that it's, I don't know where it stands, but it's somewhat being challenged. So people are actively trying to challenge that felony disenfranchisement law in Florida. People are actively trying to do things to increase the ability to vote. So some of those things will definitely work. What else works? What else might engage a population to get involved? Some of that, in my opinion, is communicating with the candidates. If your candidates are readily available, participating in debates, available to take questions, that also helps increase participation. Now, we don't do this in Tennessee, but election day registration is a way that some people are increasing voter participation. So this allows you to register to vote or update your registration on the day of the election. So imagine this. You want to vote. You show up on voting day. You register and you vote. You do it in the same day. What we do, so if you want to vote in the next midterm, this upcoming midterm, um, October 9 is the deadline for voter registration in this state. And then if you change your address, there's timelines and all this kind of thing. This allows you to show up and vote, registered or not. So you show up to the polls, you register, and you vote. It doesn't mean that anybody can show up. They still take, you have to register, you're registering under penalty of perjury, you're doing a lot of things, but you're doing it on the same day. None of this waiting period. Six states have enacted this, election day registration. Well, guess what? All six states had the highest turnout in 2016. So probably it increases voter participation to have easier access to the polls, to not make it difficult. We know that increasing early voting hours helps. We know young people like increased early voting hours. They tend to vote in early voting more than other groups. Uh, So are our election commissions increasing early voting or restricting early voting? So our election commission does a good job of posting this stuff, and you can access it online. 
but also maybe citizens should start going to the meetings. And maybe they should start telling their friends about what's going on at the meetings and keeping up with what's happening because local matters. It matters. There's automatic voter registration. Uh, this is not, we're not doing this either. And I don't know if we have plans to do this. But uh, there are 13 states with automatic voter registration, with vehicle registration, and then some states have made it so if you go receive health benefits or go get health care, you're automatically registered to vote unless you opt out. And so there's 13 states that have this, about seven of which have enacted it in the last year. And the results are pretty phenomenal. Oregon quadrupled its registrations. Vermont jumped to 62%. What I'm trying to point out is the data reflects that increased access and increased ease increases participation. That, and I think that's important. If you live somewhere where you have a, a very poor voter turnout and your lawmakers are not passing legislation to increase that, is the system also allowing people to lose motivation? Could we do things to increase motivation? And we are seeing some increased interest in this election. I'm not sure why. And, uh, but I do want to point out some increased numbers. And the Knox County Election Commission was kind enough to share this. In Knox County alone, we've had, I didn't quite do the math. It's an increase of almost 75% in voter registrations, okay, voter registrations. From January 1 until about September 25 this year, which is a midterm, compared to the last midterm, which was 2014, the same period in the last midterm, Knox County we're talking about. The new registrations in 2014 were 8,053, and the new registrations in 2018 are 14,917. So that's an increased, you know, that's an increased interest. Um, we saw over a 100% increase. I think I may not have. It's over a 100% increase in voting in the primary in Knox County. Some counties in Tennessee had substantially more. Some were 200%. Some were 300%. There's a lot of ideas about why this might be so. But the one idea is that in certain counties you had a lot more people running. And so people get excited when people run for office and they're out there standing up saying, you know, I, I want to do this for my community and my constituents. People get excited. There are things that we can do out there, and we're not doing them, and maybe we should. So that's one, one way to look at apathy, to look at disinterest, that maybe it's not merely a hands-off approach. And I want to go back to one of my clients who recently did have his rights restored. I was explaining the law to him and telling him how difficult it is to get rights restored. He's very poor. And so we had a go route of getting a court order, and so he didn't have the money for the court costs. And you, so that's, I can't remember, $150, $200. And that's a lot of money. You know, if you have it, it's not, and if you don't, it is. I was explaining the law, and he said, well, why don't they want us to vote? He had served his time. His youngest kid was like 35 years old because our law is tied to paying child support as well as your term in prison and paying court costs and things like that. So I was explaining the law, and I was trying to tell him how it worked. 
And he just said, you know, it's really ridiculous that we're not allowed to vote because the prison system is such a huge business. <laughs> and um, he said, and we have a lot to say about it. And he goes, it's kind of strange that, you know, our voice wouldn't be included in the representatives that are going to talk about these issues. And, you know, that was kind of an interesting perspective. Uh, he did, as I said, get his right to vote. This was, he was a first-time voter. He, he had not registered before he had his conviction. But he was very excited. And his politics, you know, I didn't share his politics, and I didn't care. I would fight for everybody to be able to vote. I think it's an incredibly important thing. When you have voter suppression based on felony disenfranchisement, you typically are dealing with a state that also practices voter suppression in other ways. And those voter suppression laws target the same communities. Now, whether it's by felony or by uh, gerrymandering or by some other voter suppression tactic. As Tammy said, where it's easier to vote, you have higher turnout. You have communities that feel more involved, that feel like they have a voice, that are more likely to participate. Where you have states that try to disqualify as many voters as they can, that for some reason affects the same socioeconomic demographics um, of people. And those people don't participate. Or they, even if they can participate, they just feel marginalized and excluded from the conversation. If you really start watching some of these races that are closer, and we're going to start getting closer and closer races, I think, then you're going to see shaving off percentages here and shaving off there done with a lot of data and smarts can really make a difference. In 2016, there were a lot of people on the ground in, I think it was Wisconsin. Some of the laws had changed and people don't know what they're doing. Some of it's just sheer chaos in that way. And they were getting turned away. And there are some statistics that indicate that might have changed the race in that state. People will say if you get turned away for any reason and you can't come back, vote on a provisional ballot. What you have to remember is that in order for that provisional ballot to count, you've got to go back to the election commission within two days, I think. So you have to take another trip. Now, here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that it's a little complicated, it's inconvenient in some cases, and everybody sort of knows that. And so then it's like, well, why can't we fix that? Particularly if you accept that more people will vote if we make access easier. So that's definitely not at the Knox County level. It's not the Knox County Election Commission that's doing that. It's at the state level. And you're welcome. <laughs> and, um, and so what do we do about that? This is a, a really good question. Voting's going to become a bigger issue. In the past, we would vote for our representatives. And there would be some norms in place and some, thing, you know, some ways to communicate and accomplish tasks. There would be some shared values. And those laws could get passed. And so we're in a little bit of a different atmosphere with a supermajority in Nashville. Another big, by the way, supermajorities in general. And I, don't, I really don't care if it's your team or not your team. That's a supermajority. But um, supermajorities do depress the interest in voting. They do, absolutely do. But what are we going to do about it? 
I would say start local. And I want to say from my experience on the commission that it is a very collegiate, it was collegiate in my time. I'm certain that, that I'm hopeful that stayed the case. The employees are very helpful. Everybody's very helpful. Uh, it is by its nature somewhat of a partisan body. It's appointed by representatives winning in particular parties. But the point I want to make is that it's collegiate and we are Knox County citizens and we should be showing up at those meetings and finding out what happens. And little by little, those things will make a difference. You get educated about that. You can start communicating to Nashville. You can communicate with the election office there. You can communicate with your representatives. It doesn't happen overnight. We are writing the history of voting. It's not done. We're writing it. Don't give up. We are reflecting a lack of priority, that we do not prioritize this process by the resources we're giving to it. And I'm not sure that's even accurate. I'm not sure that particularly now with what we know about the interference with the election of 2016 and the, the warnings we're receiving about the interference that's going to come up in 2018 and beyond, I don't think the population actually would agree with not prioritizing funding and review of voting. So, so the question is, how do we influence that decision? Thank you. Thank you for listening to and sharing the Knox County Public Library podcast. Find other episodes and life-changing resources at knoxlib.org.